0: hey hey and welcome back to part two of our conversation on whether or not the world is running out of food so in part one i spoke to deepak rajmohan who is founder and ceo of green pod labs and for the sake of this conversation i consider him to be a food technologist and we had a great conversation very enlightening one on what the situation of food is in developing countries like india where Most of the waste that we see is largely on the supply side. So before the food even reaches the consumer's table, there's so much waste seen in the system, which makes it interesting to then move into part two, where I speak to Zach Johnson, sixth generation family farmer from West Central Minnesota, and getting his perspective on what this phenomenon looks like in a developed country like the United States, where we see a higher percentage of waste happening after the consumer receives food. So it's gonna be a great conversation. Let's get right into it. Do you think that the world is running out of food?
1: You know, I don't. I think in the United States here, we've done such a good job of evolving and getting more and more efficient. And I believe that there's a lot of the world that is behind us uh, with in that regard. And I think there's a lot of arable land out there that either A is not developed yet, and, and I'm not saying that it necessarily all should be, um, but there is land out there that could be developed for farm use. And there are a lot of practices that could make uh, a lot of farms within the world much more efficient. And here in the United States, we do a very good job of that. I, I guess I would consider us the world leaders, but you look at what countries um, like Brazil and Argentina have done down in South America and how far their crop production has come in the last uh, 20 years. And it is unbelievable, specifically what they've been able to do with soybeans by just understanding more about practices, making their arable land more efficient and using using the infrastructure they have and building on that. One of the other places to look is at food waste. My understanding, at least like within the United States, is there is a lot of food wasted out there. I really don't feel like we are running out of food at this point. I I think we are doing an an awfully good job of keeping up with our needs.
0: The food that you produce, how much of it is consumed here in the U.S. versus exported out?
1: You know, that changes frequently. Dad and I grow corn and soybeans at the moment, large-scale commodity crops. A lot of that is exported. Specifically to China, especially when it comes to the soybeans, Mm -hmm. China buys a lot of soybeans from the U.S. Those soybeans go overseas. And then most of the time, the the big reason they want them is they feed them for pork production. Mm -hmm. So they're feeding them to hogs over there. Mm -hmm. When China's economy took off and the, the Chinese people ended up living a little bit better and they're making a little more money and they can make better choices when it comes to eating, they demand pork. In the United States, generally, if you have money to eat the way you want to, we demand steak or beef. In China, they demand pork. And so their pork industry has really exploded faster than what their their feed industry could take off with it. So they import a lot of our soybeans. They get a lot from South America as well. But I would say probably, oh, I'm guessing close to half of our soybean uh, production here probably ends up going to the West Coast and, and gets exported and probably a large majority of that to to China. When it comes to corn, we do export corn. Mexico is a big importer of our corn. They like to use a lot of our grain. But I would say when it comes to corn specifically on our farm, we actually market probably 80 to 90% of our corn lately has been marketed towards local ethanol plants. And then you get into the talk of, okay, now you're using food for fuel. And that is true. I like to point out that number one, it's a great fuel alternative when it comes to (laughs) being environmentally friendly and cleaner burning and, and renewable, quite honestly. So you can discuss that. And then you look at the byproduct of ethanol and really all they're removing is the sugars from that corn. And then the oil and the protein goes on to be a feed source or a product in some sort of food. So the oils are all still there and they're being used in food products, skincare products and haircare products, which sounds odd, but but that's what they're going for. And then the protein that remains from that corn is actually being used as a ration in livestock feed. So it's still being used as food the way it normally would. We're just we're just extracting the sugars out of it for ethanol production.
0: So it's not just about growing food for human consumption. It's what, can, what else can food be used for? Like you took corn and there's probably 10 different uses for corn, right? So right. that's being able to then growing one thing and then meeting these several needs but if we stick with the consumption part this idea about growing food here in the US to feed pigs in China because of the consumer demand there i'm of two thoughts around that and would love to hear your thoughts around this too right if we're If we're moving more towards this global community where we're all a lot more connected to each other across the world than we've ever have been before through technology, then why not food as well? So why can't we make these connections with food where I can help feed you over there? That kind of thinking versus a more traditional or maybe old school type of thinking. My parents, they grew up in a time where they ate what was in season. Like if it was wintertime and oranges were in season, that's what they would eat. They wouldn't look for oranges in the summertime because it wasn't in season. So then that makes me think of growing local, consuming local, and not just local, but at that time. Because right now we're in this world where if I want avocados all year round, I can get avocados all year round. It may not be just from California, maybe from Mexico, maybe from another part of the world, but I can get it because I demand it. So the question I'm asking is just for your opinion on the world where we're in today, where we can literally get anything we want from anywhere at any time versus eating what's there at that time.
1: Yeah, and I think there's a place for all of agriculture. Obviously growing large scale corn and soybeans isn't for everybody and it certainly isn't for every consumer. But what I tell that younger generation that's interested in getting into farming is that you don't have to do what I do if you love farming. There are farms out there who simply have a a small amount of soil or a small uh, herd of livestock and maybe one tractor And they're doing very well by being creative and hitting some of those niche markets because there are a lot of consumers out there who are demanding some different things, whether that's organic stuff or free range stuff or non-GMO or whatever it might be, right? And I think that's a beautiful thing. There's a place for everybody within agriculture. I really think it's up to the diversity of what the consumers want to demand. And that consumer demand is what's going to drive the evolution of agriculture to branch off in these different directions but i also think in a lot of cases consumers are not fully educated on the decisions that they're making and that's not to point a finger at anybody because i certainly am not educated on every decision that i make most consumers their job every day when they get up does not consist of making the decisions or educating themselves on food production they just they need to eat and they need to feed their families and The same way that I don't wake up and think about how to be, how would I be a better lawyer or a dentist? That's not a thought process I have. I leave that up to the professionals. Mm -hmm. But I think there are a lot of cases where consumers are saying, for example, I want to eat non-GMO food. That's great. And you should have that option. But understand that GMOs were created and are used widely to make us more efficient. The chemistry that I use on our corn now, has diminished by a lot. And the chemistry I use is a safer chemistry than what I used before we had genetically modified seed. So sure, it sounds scary to say the word genetically modified organism. And it sounds like we're talking about building Frankenstein here. But the fact is that I'm actually being more efficient and I'm doing things in a safer way and a way that's better for the farmer, for the consumer and for the environment by using the latest technology in the same way we use the latest technology in every other industry. I would never step on an airplane and tell them that I want them to get rid of the GPS and I wanna go back to the way it was 50 years ago, right? I wouldn't do that with computers or any kind of transportation, any kind of safety protocols. I, 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 I get frustrated sometimes by the way that agriculture is being told that's what we should do. So while I think it's important to have that decision for the consumers, I also think it's important that they educate themselves on the choices that they make.
0: Right. So I'm wondering, like, the effects of mass production, what has that done to the quality of our food?
1: I guess off the top of my head, anytime you look at mass production food, things are done to be mass produced and to be efficient, right? So mm-hmm. perhaps, there is, perhaps there is some food quality that gets diminished through processes like that. At the same time, when we're using better technology, we can look at different cultivars of crops or different hybrids of crops, different varieties of crops. And we can choose to grow the ones that have a better nutrient density or, or we can look at the soil and say, because the soil and water is what essentially feeds that seed, that the crop is going to be fed from that soil. So we can look at the practices that we're doing with the soil. And that's something as a farmer that we look at every single day, right? Because if we don't have a healthy soil what do we have as a farmer? You can give me the best seeds in the world, but if they don't have a healthy soil to to grow off of, and I don't feed that seed correctly, we're going to have problems. So we can look at the soil and say, let's make sure that we're doing the best job that we can to take care of that soil so that it's still here in a hundred years. And there's a lot being done in agriculture on that front as well. Right now, I would say that's probably one of the biggest things going on is really figuring out, the soil and looking at the science within that and saying well the science doesn't fit everywhere what fits me isn't going to fit in saskatchewan and isn't going right. to fit the same as it does down in florida right where they're growing different crops at a different scale so how do we look at our individual soils on a farm by farm basis and then make that choice for the crops that we're growing and i, I rambled a little bit there Oh, no, this end. is
0: great <laughs> at least my perspective is I did not like vegetables when I was growing up. So for me, it's a win. If I have a salad now, I'm like, whatever the quality of that vegetable is, it's better for me that I had that bowl of salad of low nutrients versus not. So that's my opinion on it. But what is the most creative thing you have done in your farming experience to either grow more of something or grow something better of something?
1: You know... Right now, one of the things that, that I just started testing with here and it, it comes off of the connections that I've made and the, the people and the podcasts that I've been a part of really And and that is, I planted some cover crops this fall. And what the idea is behind that is to cover the soil during the winter and prevent some of the wind erosion that happens during the winter because our ground ah, freezes. Okay. Mm-hmm. But, but So it freezes when there's moisture there, but the top of the ground is always dry and at least in the winter for us. And if we don't get snow cover, which normally we do, but we don't have that right now. And so when the wind comes up, it blows some of that dirt and essentially the lightest soil is the first stuff to blow off, right? That's also the best soil. That's your soil that's most capable of holding the the highest amount of nutrients. The top soil. Yes. Okay. That is not soil that I want. The smaller those soil particles, the easier they blow away and the more efficient they are at holding nutrients. Mm. So that's not something I want. I do not want my soil blowing into the road ditch or into mm-hmm. the neighbor's field. Or I've heard soil scientists talk about how the very light soil particles will actually get up into the atmosphere and into the jet stream and they'll go thousands of miles away. Well, I want that soil in my field. That's my biggest asset. So I've planted cover crop on a few acres to try There are a lot of farmers specifically down in Iowa, it seems like uh, right now, uh, when it comes to the corn and soybean front, having great luck with with cover crop and incorporating that into a a corn and soybean rotation. Cover crops are not something new. They've been around forever, but when corn and soybean production became big, it became much more popular to just turn the soil over, get the residue managed more and get it underneath the, the ground so that your soil will dry out quicker in the springtime. The sun gets on that dark soil dries it out, and then you can get out there and get planted, which generally equates to a higher yield. The science that's being done now is showing that after years and years of this heavy tillage, we're actually degrading the soils and we're changing the biology within the soil. So what we want to do is try to get away from some of that tillage if we can and build up the soil profile again so that the water infiltrates better and we've got a better soil structure there. But One of the things, one of the big things, especially in the part of the world where I'm from and up in through the Red River Valley and up towards Winnipeg where we can grow really good corn and soybeans, but our soil is very heavy, very wet. We're in a colder climate. It's difficult to dry it out. Running tillage really helps us get in the spring and does obviously and clearly equate to a a much better yield, but how do we try to work in towards getting away from that and can it be done? And I think one of the keys to doing that might be cover crops because some of the examples I've seen with some of the farmers down in Iowa, and if you go west of us where they run a lot of smaller grain stuff and it gets a little bit drier, they don't get nearly the rainfall once you get out into the Western Dakotas, Montana, Saskatchewan, those areas. They deal with cover crops and no-till all the time, and they have really good success with it out there. But trying to grow corn on a heavy, wet soil in a colder climate is a whole different thing. And so... I'm trying to figure out how we can incorporate cover crops into the rotation without it just being more costly to us. Yeah. And that's going to be a slow process, but that's probably the biggest thing that I'm the most excited about to make right sure, is, is hopefully trying to figure that out over the next uh, several years.
0: This may be very simplistic understanding of what you just stated, but is it essentially that does the ground just sometimes need a break? Don't touch it. Or is this concept of a cover crop because it may not be corn or soy, it's something else, maybe has a lighter profile or a different profile, that too can act like a break for the ground.
1: It's actually the opposite of that. The soil mm. does not want to break. It wants to be busy. It oh. wants living roots. The soil's alive and the, the organisms in there, they want roots to feed on. Mm. And they want to process everything that's down in that soil and they want to stay busy and you want to keep that activity going. And the problem is when our, our corner soybeans are ripe and we harvest them and then we till the soil, that soil is essentially done moving, right? There, there's Mm not, there, there is organic matter there and residue for those organisms to work on. But anytime you can have living roots within the soil and have a plant that is actually pulling nutrients from the atmosphere and putting that in the soil, it's keeping the soil busier and it's healthier for the soil and those roots help build up. structure and the organic matter and water infiltration and in our part of the world I I don't know I I guess in my head I think maybe it isn't quite as important because usually within a couple of weeks or sometimes even before we're done harvesting we're frozen solid so that soil's Mm -hmm. not really moving anyway unless you get down deep Mm -hmm. and as soon as we can get on it in the spring we're going to try to plant something so we're trying to always be out there anyway but I think there is definitely something to having that living root structure and those living plants on that soil as often as you possibly can. And then there's other uses for cover crops too. We could talk all day about it, about how you can use it to break up compaction within the soil. You can use it to bring in atmospheric nitrogen and and fix nitrogen within the soil. Um, You can use it to reduce having to drive through the mud essentially because if you think about where you're driving a tractor, if you're driving on bare, wet soil, it's a lot more difficult than driving across your lawn. There's just there's so many different options with cover crops, and that's where I think we still have a lot to figure out on that front with figuring out in, in the parts of the world where I'm from.
0: You literally just blew my mind with, for some reason, <laughs> I was just so comfortable in this knowledge, like, yeah, the ground needs a break. You can't just keep having it spit out crops. But when you were like, no, it's a living thing, we need to maintain that life through living roots. I've just learned this has been like the best piece of knowledge, like all week that I've gained. So thank you so much for that. Now, when you say cover crops, what kind of crops are they? What are some examples?
1: You know, anything, essentially a plant is a plant, right? And anything can be used as a cover crop. It really just depends on what you're trying to achieve. And I should also say that I am no expert on this, but I talk a lot with farmers that are, (laughs) and we actually have a podcast called Fieldwork, and that is through Minnesota Public Radio, and that's what we do. My co-host, Mitchell Hora, is actually, uh, he is a a soil health consultant from down in Iowa, and he's testing tons of this stuff all the time, and he works with hundreds of farmers who deal with this. But essentially, it all comes down to what you're trying to achieve. Are you trying to get nitrogen in the Mm -hmm. soil and use that as what we call like a green manure and essentially fertilize, get some of your fertilizer needs right from the atmosphere by using that crop? Are you trying to use it as uh, to prevent erosion? In the way that's really what my main goal was, is to prevent some of that wind erosion coming off the hilltops. Are you trying to use the diversity to try to, maybe you're trying to do weed control with it. There's a lot of guys having good success with that. They actually, sounds odd, but they actually plant in a specific crop as a cover crop that might come in, say, under the corn or above their soybeans to use it as weed control. And then essentially when you kill it off and you let the crop take over, that dead mat of cover crop will actually act as weed control. And there are guys having great success with that. And and a lot of them claim they don't have to spray their fields anymore as long as they can kill off that cover crop correctly. Yeah. They don't have to come back with another herbicide to control weeds. So there's so many different options with it. And it's I think it's really just like so many other things in farming, it's about trying to figure out what works for you on your operation.
0: Right. I'm envisioning a checklist of things. If you want to do X, then use Y. If you want to do Z, then use A. And so is it really that simple? Like after so many tests and trials, have you figured it's, out which what you need?
1: Scientifically, if you say, okay, I want to bring nitrogen into my soil, you can use, if you talk to the agronomist about it, they will say, okay, then plant this mix of cover crops. But if you say, I want to break up compaction, okay, try some of the radishes and the larger root things that'll go down deep and break up compaction. If you say, I'm just interested really at this point in weed control and erosion control. Okay, then try a winter. And so yes, they can point to specific crops and say, this is what you should use. But then there's so many other pieces to that puzzle that you have to bring in. Because then now you got to say, do I have the machinery to plant that cover crop? Am I going to harvest it? Am I going to run livestock on it? Am I growing crops that will work with that cover crop? Because in a lot of cases, there are certain cover crops that just don't work with corn and soybeans, whether it's the timing being off, or maybe it's the chemistry you've used in the past, which sometimes will stick with the soil and won't allow cover crops to grow. Corn gets to a point where you can't drive in it. So if you're going to try and get a cover crop in there and it's late, you're going to have to fly that on. And I've tried that three times and had zero success with it. So you can look at the different... Uh, options for cover crops and say, this is what I should be growing. You don't always have a way to make that fit within the puzzle that is your specific farming operation.
0: Fascinating. I want to go back to an earlier point that you brought up, which, which was consumer waste. So what are your thoughts on why do people waste as much food as they do here? Because I guess that's part of the problem of this perception of we're running out of food. Like in some countries, there's so much food that there's enough to waste. Like 50% of a household's grocery goes into the trash at the end of the week or at the end of two weeks. Whereas in another part of the world, they don't have enough food to even waste. So whatever that is, how, what do you think we can do here? to bring that more to a balanced, like there will be waste, right? We have to assume that there's always going to be waste in the system, but how can we work as part of your consumer education? How can we help bring that number down?
1: That's a good question. I think the whole waste issue specifically in countries like the U.S. is obviously is due to the fact that we live pretty comfortably here compared yeah. to a lot of the world. We have that option. If, if we put more on our plate than what we're gonna eat, Okay, well, at least I got to eat everything I wanted to eat. It's unfortunate, but yet at the same time, it's, we're fortunate. That is a thing. We don't live in a country where we're struggling to find the scraps to eat. We're lucky to have the fact that exists, but yeah, how do we, how do we slow that down or how do we diminish that? I I think that's an individual effort. I think that's going to take an individual effort because I don't know Besides mentioning it in conversations like this, how do you influence somebody half the way across the country that that maybe they shouldn't put that extra scoop of whatever it is on their plate? Or if you go to a restaurant and this is what you want and you have the money to do that, you're going to order what you want. And I think just raising the awareness of it on an individual effort probably is is the best way to really diminish that and make a difference there.
0: Because if you, if we think about how we can enact anything on a wider scale, we immediately start moving into the public sector, right? Like local government or federal government trying to mandate or control. And then that perception of control or limiting our individual freedom then comes into play, which is why you mentioned this should be, or this should first start at the individual level, the the individual awareness. Do you think that there are certain things that so sticking with the theme of not to not to take away from an individual's freedom, but still trying to think about the community a bit more, from moving from individual to then the community thinking, is there something that we could do at the local establishment level, like the restaurants, how they then treat the wasted food, instead of then throwing it into their garbage can, Do you think that there could be an additional level of effort they could put in to, okay, this is the food that was not consumed. What can we do with this now? So even just simply asking that question, do you think it's being done right now, just from your perspective?
1: Well, there's definitely restaurants that are composting or selling off the the composted food or bringing it to a farm to be composted. That That is going on as it should be. If you move past an individual effort and you move into the community effort, you talk about the individual freedoms. And I think everybody's a fan of maintaining as much individual freedom as we can. So I think before anybody starts thinking about some sort of government regulation on that front, I think it it would be hopefully better to try to come up with ways to incentivize people to not waste the food, right? And Mm -hmm. so how do you incentivize people, whether that's through creative marketing at the restaurant level or maybe there's something you can do to incentivize the restaurant to to do that and then beyond that you're looking at groceries i guess the way that my brain works is here is i went to restaurants first you're asking questions that that i don't get into too often here which so this is a good i'm
0: sorry but not sorry yeah exactly, exactly. no i
1: appreciate that it's definitely going to get me thinking more later tonight on on some of the, some of this topic but I think about the restaurants first, because I think right. when you go to a restaurant and you order X off of the menu, it comes on the plate as it is, whether I can finish that meal or not. And then from there, I don't know what happens with it. But, but how do you incentivize restaurants and individual people to waste less? And then beyond that, when you go to the grocery store and in your own kitchen, what is the incentive? Uh, because obviously the financial right.
0: incentive doesn't right. necessarily work. But that's fascinating because, again, I did not know this, but there's a buyback program. There is a mechanism for a restaurant or maybe even individuals to come and sell compost to farms. I did not know that
1: existed. I believe so. I think that's something that's relatively new as well. And I think it's not a simple process that there may be, and I don't know, but I would guess that there's probably some hoops to jump through when it comes to that so that restaurant waste isn't just being thrown onto the fields in an unregulated way. My Mm -hmm. guess is that there's probably some hoops to jump through and make sure that you're following a specific protocol more than likely. It's not something I've worked with, but I've certainly heard about that type of thing. I I do know that is being done, that type of stuff.
0: But can Um, all food compost be treated equally when trying to use for farming?
1: Well, as a farmer, when I think of that, I think obviously a tomato is going to compost differently than a chicken wing. So I think as the farmer, when you look at that, as a farmer, if I was purchasing compost, which I'd be willing to do mm-hmm. because there's nutrient, you know, that nutrients, the nutrients in there are an asset to me. If I put those on my field, I want those nutrients. It's, it's fertilizer,
0: mm-hmm.
1: And so I I want that. But as a farmer, I also can't just throw it in a spreader and toss it all out there because it's not going to be in an evenly fed nutrients. It, so what I think one would need to do is have it compost down. You'd have to grind it, mix it, and then get a scientific analysis on exactly what nutrients are in there
0: mm-hmm.
1: so that you can try to blend it all together and get a, the most consistent nutrient analysis that you possibly could to put on your field. And I know that, I know for sure that is done across the country when it comes to the waste in the, in the waste ponds that we have outside the cities. They will actually dry down the solid waste and it gets composted it gets dried down a lot of times the energy gets burned they will burn off the methane for for energy the cities will and then that dried compost will come out and be used as a fertilizer source and like in in our neighboring county we actually have a large city that does that and they put it up for bids and the farmers pay money to purchase that it's composted human waste but essentially it's just fertilizer everything ends up the same in the end it's all nutrients that we can use to grow crops. And so I I don't see why composting restaurant waste would be any different.
0: Which is why it's important to grow highly nutritious food and make it available to consumers because then the waste that they generate, if we want to use it for more farming, it is important to you as a farmer to use highly nutritious compost. So Zach, on the ending note, what is a message that you are trying to put out there for consumers?
1: I think a couple of things here on the message I would like to get out to consumers. Number one, just because farms look different today than they did 50, 60, 80, or hundred years ago, it doesn't mean that they aren't the same family farmers out there doing what they've always loved to do. For example, my farm right here, we are sixth generation. We've been on this same piece of land for 152 years now. We love what we do and, and it's my dad and I farming. And if I climb up to the tallest point in the county and I look out in every direction, 95% of the farms are the same exact way. We are still the same families out here doing what we love to do. And if we don't take care of the water, the air, and the soil, and the ecosystem that we have here, that affects my family more immediately than it affects anybody else. So we have a real interest in making sure that we take care of our local natural resources And I want people to know that we use the management practices that we use for good reason. And it isn't because we're just hell bent on money. We really have scientific reasons and management practices that we use for a reason. And we're not just out there throwing fertilizer down and pesticide down and all the drain tile we can to try to pump out the best yield we possibly can. We're trying to get a return on investment on stuff and we're trying to grow food healthily, not just for consumers like you, but also for our own family and for ourselves. Farmers still love what we do, and we're still out here doing what we love.
0: Thank you so much for your time.
1: Yes, thank you. I appreciate you having me on.
0: I hope you enjoyed these conversations with both Deepak and Zach about this really important topic about food and whether we're really running out of it or wasting it away or some combination of both. Now, before I sign off, I did want to take a minute to think a little bit more about something they both mentioned, which was the power of the consumer. They both spoke about sweeping changes in the system which have been brought about by things that the consumer wants. And so everything that they do moving forward is, again, based on what the consumer wants or doesn't want. I remember watching an episode of the show called A Good Place where the entire premise of the show was to tally up points that people get from living good lives or bad lives on Earth, which then assigns them to the good place or the bad place after they die. And in this one episode, they were showing how it was so much easier to accumulate points for the bad place than it was for the good place because... Of this, There was this one person who made the decision, they thought that they were buying an organic tomato and so they were doing great for the world, but then it turned out that that one organic tomato, the way that it was being grown or it was being transported, it actually did more bad for the environment than good. And what this showed me was that It is very complicated to make what we think are right decisions, not just for ourselves, but for the community and world around us. But I don't want to let that complexity lead me into complacency. Now, what I mean is just because it might be so hard for me to buy the most ethical thing at the store, I don't want to give up. I still want to drive myself to learn more. And then to educate myself and others around me a little bit more and really continue the effort to do what I can. Because, as Deepak and Zach both said, I have a lot of power as a consumer and I need to start exercising that. So, please tune in next time when I continue these really important conversations with really smart people. And in the meantime, keep your heart open so that you can hear your own truth. And again, if you've enjoyed any part of this conversation, then please share this out with other folks in your group. And until then, toodles!